You get predictable consequences when you start encouraging everybody to think about themselves as their categories. I don't think it's a wise, a clever place to start going. So I just wish we'd shut the fuck up about it a little bit and get on with our lives and focus on the big important stuff. Like the fact that we're still spewing massive amounts of carbon by burning fossil fuels and like the west coast of the United States is on fire and Australia was on fire last summer. And whatever you, even if you're a climate skeptic or whatever, we know with absolute certainty, we don't know the exact details, but we know with absolute certainty that the 21st century is going to get a lot more expensive and a lot more annoying and there'll be a lot more complicated movements of people and a lot more radical politics and a lot more far-right movements as a result of the kinds of droughts and disruptions and changes to the weather system. Can we just, like, talk about that? I want to be talking about, you know, how to live on this planet and get along and manage our technology and our nuclear weapons and our fossil fuels in ways that don't just cause our grandchildren enormous pains in the asses. That's what I want to be talking about. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest this week is Australian television and radio host and podcaster, Josh Zepps. Josh's new podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations, is kind of like this one. He interviews a range of people about a range of topics that, as he's put it, seek to tease out things that are uncomfortable for us to grasp, for society to face up to, or for listeners to face up to, considering where they sit politically or because it may conflict with what their tribe represents. There are quite a few of us doing that these days, but Josh does it exceptionally well, I think both because and despite of his background in traditional broadcasting. The founding host of the award-winning HuffPost Live, where he managed to be a celebrity interviewer who was also just really obviously smart, Josh was also the host of the live comedy talk show podcast We The People Live and has performed at numerous comedy festivals around the world. He can now be heard on ABC Radio Sydney in addition to his podcast. Oh, and just a quick note about this interview. At one point, I make a reference to the philosophical concept of the fox versus the hedgehog. I misattribute it to Walter Benjamin. It's actually the subject of an essay by Isaiah Berlin. So I stand corrected there. Not a big deal, but you guys are smart and I know I'll hear from you otherwise. And with that, here's my interview with Josh Zepps. What time is it there, by the way? Uh, it's 25 to 8 in the, in, on uh, Wednesday morning. Oh, my goodness. On, no, sorry. What is it? Is it Wednesday? Is it Tuesday? It's Tuesday. Okay, that's right. It's Monday. Has anything happened uh, that we don't know about because you're in the future? <laughs> <laughs> well, Daylight Saving started for us on the weekend, which is very exciting. So it means that my children, I have three-year-old toddlers don't who aren't capable of understanding the concept of space-time and... Uh, and all of that nonsense yet. So they st- they started sleeping in until quarter to seven instead of getting up at quarter to six with the birds. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's, that's nice. That's progress. That's progress. Yeah. But nothing's happened in the news that for you, but not for us because you're ahead of us in time. No, I mean, you know about President Trump declaring war on China. Okay. Right? Oh, no, that happened overnight. That's for you guys only. Yeah. Not, not, not well, us. Well, you're going to get a big surprise. Okay. Big Good. surprise. All right. You heard it here first, folks. Josh Zepps, congratulations on the new podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations. Thank you. Congratulations on your new podcast. Thank you. I must say, I was a little bit red. I was a little bit upset when I saw that you were launching something on Twitter, and I only got in maybe a week or two before you. And then I was like, well, we're just basically going to do the same show. And then I thought, well, that's not a very kind thing to think. 
we're very different people. We'll do different shows, even if it's loosely about the same thing. Everyone's talking about this stuff anyway. Well, yeah, there so are no other shows like this. I mean, presumably. But I did have about seven minutes of what's the opposite of Schadenfreude, where you're like, instead of being happy at someone's lack of success, you resent their success. Oh, well, that's just every day. That's just called... Uh, <laughs> that's called being Megan and Josh. Your typical Monday. Well, presumably we launched our podcast for the same reasons, which is that yes. there aren't enough podcasts out there and someone needed to step up and do one. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> especially exactly. the interview format. <laughs> and especially people complaining about uh, about wokeness gone mad. I think that's... Yeah, I was going to say. a very underrepresented genre. <laughs> I read one statistic that I think even as of this month, there are... 1.5 million podcasts, but that actually seems low. I don't know. That seems low to me, but also it depends on what you cl cl classify as a podcast. Like, is that just the 14-year-old in his basement talking about role-player games? But those are the ones that do well. That's what we need to aspire mm. to. Who knows? Should we be doing that? Now you're making me second-guess uncomfortable conversations. I can't even turn yet. my TV if I had a TV, I wouldn't be able to turn it on because I can't operate a remote control. So anything that happens involving screens, basements is is way out of, Great. Out of my skill set. You and my three-year-old daughter, I tell you what, when I manage to teach my three-year-old daughter how to turn on the TV, which is going to buy me another hour of sleep, then I'll have her coach you. That's fantastic. I was just realizing today that like I used to ask when I needed advice, I almost exclusively asked somebody older. And now I almost exclusively have to ask somebody younger. Oh, that's funny, isn't it? It's an inflection point. How long ago were you asking older people? You know, I was trying to remember that. Come on. Older people haven't known more about tech since you were 20. It's not even tech. I was just thinking like I would ask somebody for career advice or just some oh, general right, yeah. advice. But even Older or same age as me, people can't give career advice because we don't. No, our careers have, have imploded, so we yeah, need to they're ask. They're all like plastics. Exactly. I think a three-year-old would be the, the sweet spot for yeah. life coaching, career advice. Yeah, that's good. So, that's good. okay, your show is called Uncomfortable Conversation. Just before we get there, let me add one yes. other thing on that point. Yes. Isn't it funny when you? I, I now I'm reminiscing about like being twenty and noticing for the first time that successful people could also be younger than you. Uh, that's a horror show. And not necessarily Olympians. I mean, if they're in the Olympics, that's okay. But we're talking non-Olympians. Yeah, just general successful people. You're yeah. like, oh, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm in finance. I'm a banker. Like, oh, and you're two years younger than me. I thought I didn't think that children could be bankers. When I was little, I think that I thought that I like. I knew that I would get older, obviously, at a very, from a very young age. It's a pretty easy concept to grasp. But no one told me that more people would continue to be produced as I grew older, and yeah. that they would continue to populate, I just sort of thought I would be the end of history. And so I would always be the younger, cooler person than everybody else. Because when you're young, everyone else is an idiot. All right. the people are stupid and uncool. And you're the vanguard. I just didn't know there'd be subsequent vanguards. It's very disorienting. I, I was always the youngest person in the room. I was precocious. So yeah, I always assumed. I remember when my parents, when Bill Clinton was elected president, that was the first president who was younger than them. Like, that must be weird. Right. Yes, that's going to be a shock. Yeah. Oh, I have yet to have that one. Have you had that? Have you had that with Obama? No, I am younger no. than Obama, please. Okay. No, but you, he would have been younger than you when he won? No. Oh, than I am now? Yeah. Well, was he under 50? I'm not. <laughs> I'm a polite man. I'm not going to ask. 
We're going to bleep this out. Okay. okay. Well, okay, actually, now bleep. now this is your show is called Uncomfortable Conversations, which this is starting to be. Mine yep. is called The Unspeakable. Mm. The conceit, at least on the surface, is that we're having sort of dangerous conversations that might we're make so edgy, even us uncomfortable. But I noticed in the introduction to your interview with Oliver Berkman, who was a journalist for The Guardian, you addressed the charge that I suspect I'm going to get soon, that you only have conversations with people you really sort of agree with. So you said something interesting about that. Yeah, my look, I had to, because so, people were saying, like, it's not that uncomfortable, like you were sort of agreeing with him. And I guess my point would be that I want to have conversations that make us uncomfortable in the context of our cherished beliefs and assumptions. Like, I don't necessarily want to be antagonizing the guest. My sort of guilty secret is that as the show goes on, I do want to do a bit more of that. And I do want to have people who I disagree with a bit more and have actual arguments. But I wanted to set the show up to begin with as a place where people who buck the trend, who speak in unconventional ways, who are controversial in their ideas, who don't inhabit an easy orthodoxy, who piss people off on both sides of the fence, and I can have conversations. Now, that doesn't mean that I have to make every moment of that conversation uncomfortable. I hope I wouldn't. That would be bad. And that's part of what I'm trying to push against, which is the this sort of 24-hour cable news sentiment that you always have to, everything ramped up to 11 and, you know, that a good conversation is a conflicted one. Let's get someone from the left and let's get someone from the right and they can shout at each other or let's have some sort of echo chamber where we're reinforcing each other's beliefs. I just want to detonate all echo chambers and all phony argumentation and have real long-form conversations with people that don't give a shit about the tripwires that might be triggered or the people who we might piss off. And I'm a little bit hesitant because I know that this is sort of a thing. Like, I don't want to sort of be another intellectual, dark, webby kind of, you know, sort of like Weinstein ripoff, like, you know, Dave Rubin. Which Weinstein do you mean? Well, well, the pair of them, I guess. I know, but which, do you have a preference between the two brothers? Do you have like a favorite? Oh my goodness, this is such a Sophie's choice. And this is Mm -hmm. such an, this is exactly what I'm talking about because it's such an in-conversation because why don't you explain who we're even talking about? Would anyone not know who Brett and Eric are? Listening to this podcast, I would hope a few people. So, Brett, I've never had to do this off the cuff. Who are Brett and Eric Weinstein? The other wine, the, the, not the Weinstein brothers, the Weinstein brothers, first of all, mind you. The Weinstein brothers. They are two very intellectual, successful, dissident academics. Well, I suppose only Brett well, is technically Yeah, Eric's academic. not really an academic, right? And yeah, Brett's although not, he, no has a, he has a brain the size of her. Well, of he, the moon. He's smarter than academics, let's face it. Yeah. Don't paint him with that brush. So Brett is an evolutionary biologist, uh, or was, who got run out of his left-wing college in the Pacific Northwest after being, being accused of being racist because he didn't want racial segregation on campus. That's a sort of a short Yes, this was the Evergreen State College saga. That's right. And then Eric... His brother works for Peter Thiel. Yes. Notorious Trump supporter and Silicon Valley billionaire and is a mathematician. And an economist. Who, I don't know what he does, in, and an economist, I guess. And they're very contrarian. Anyway, all of this is a long way to say that, like, they have their followers. Yes. And Heather Hying, Brett's wife, was my first uh, guest on this podcast. 
Oh, fantastic. She's also an evolutionary biologist, and she's fascinating. She's actually the most interesting of the trio. I agree. She's the smartest of the three of them. And unfortunately, we talked about this for a while anyway. You would Google her name, and the first thing that would come up was Brett Weinstein's wife. Yeah, that happens a lot. But now that she's been on my podcast, that's all been all been re- reversed. <laughs> so whatever you can, this is a now chance. Now he's just a footnote at the bottom of that's her right. of her podcast. So the intellectual dark web is a term that Eric Weinstein coined. I think he was really speaking off the cuff, but unfortunately, in my opinion, it has stuck, and it sort of refers to this loose constellation of thinkers, including those guys, and maybe people like Sam Harris. Who else? Uh, well, so the problem is that it, that sometimes just a bunch of assholes get uh, lumped in there as well. I would put Dave Rubin in that camp. Who's that weaselly little conservative who everyone loves, Brett Shapiro? Ben Shapiro? Oh, see, I don't consider him in the IDW at all. No, he gets lumped in there. Yeah, see, a lot of people do. This is the problem. Yeah. Yeah, I don't like to identify that way. What I am not is the, is the old man on a porch railing against cultural progress, but in the body of a younger man, which is like what Ben is. And I think what Dave Rubin essentially is. Like at, at any, during any moment of great cultural change, there's always a stodgy old bunch of people whining about it and saying kids these days with their hair and their rock music need to pull their pants up and get a job. And if only you could still tell jokes and use the N word casually and, uh, you know, slap women on the ass at the office, everything would be better. And I think there's a bit of a subtext to this cultural moment. I mean, you just have to look at the backlash that's happened against political correctness in the form of people like Trump. And you see just this kind of horrible, what I think of as being a, it's part angry, but it's also part dripping with white privilege. And these are not terms that I I bandy around lightly in the traditional woke sense. I I just mean, it literally is dripping with literal (laughs) white privilege. And I don't want to be part of that. What I do want to be part of is it's kind of disentangling what is valid about our the cultural crises of the moment from the bullshit. And part of the problem is that when you try to do that, the people who are peddling the bullshit, mostly on the left at the moment, uh, in terms of cultural stuff, they think that you're part of the enemy and they can only see two, like you have to just pick one door. Yeah. Either you're a fascist white supremacist or you're on their side. And I don't want to be on their side, but I want to make it clear that I'm also not just using my discomfort with the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter as a as a pretext to entrench the sort of hegemony of my own side. Yeah, and it's hard to brand something like that. I mean, it's a nuanced yeah. approach, and nuance yeah. itself is a word that is has been weaponized and is going out the door, but... I know, isn't that a shame? It, I, I love it. I feel like it which would be like a popular baby name. It's going to nuance. Someone I just met found out that a friend has just had a baby... And it, they're called Koa, K-O-A. Oh, it sounds sort of Hawaiian or something. Yeah, that's I what I that. thought. Yeah. And when I asked my, my partner, what even is that? Why, what are they doing? He said, oh, it's a very Northern Beaches thing, which is like the part of Sydney that's sort of like what you would imagine the Northern Beaches of Los Angeles that has the same kind of demographic profile mm-hmm. in Malibu. Koa. Well, I'm, I'm rooting for nuance. I would like to see a, a surgeon okay. baby name. Would you spell it the same or would you do N-O-O-U-U, capital U? It's like Megan. It's like my name. There's just infinite numbers of spellings. So it could be like that. There could be an umlaut. Yeah. There could be some sort of abuse of accents and, you know, that kind I of I like thing. that. N-U yeah. with an umlaut. Yes. O-O, two little O's. 
maybe one with a smiley face on it. An emoji, right? An emoji and is actually a part smiley, of the name. Yeah, a smiley face emoji is part of the name. Then you have an eggplant emoji and then NS, mm-hmm. nuance. Yeah, and if you had a second child, you could just call it Nanook, like Nanook of the North. <laughs> just to, I like to be like if you were Can we put a those... Z or a Z after nuance? Nuance. Nuance. Mm-hmm. nuance. Now, do non-Americans call you Megan? Um, I don't talk to anybody who's not American, so I don't know. <laughs> have to get back to you on that. Uh, it's one of those names that, like the, the name Craig, people outside of America, we're very, we get very uncomfortable when Americans are talking to us because Americans have their own way of, of pronouncing those names. It's, it's like oregano and oregano and things like that. Like Craig is a name and Megan are names. Yeah, well, Megan is a name, but my name Craig is not Megan. Megan. Yeah, I don't like it when people say Megan. That's true. Okay. Well, but, that's your name, but, uh, but that's fine. Okay, I don't have thanks. to call you, you don't by have your name. Do, I don't like to be called by my name. Okay, so let's get back to some of these IDW characters or IDW yeah. adjacent characters. You recently did an interview with John McWhorter, who, mm. along with Glenn Lowry, is among those who first drew me into this world. Yeah. McWhorter is a uniquely original thinker, and he always has new things to say, but he's also kind of making the rounds these days, not as much as some people, because I know he's writing a book, but he's not in hiding. How do you interview someone who's been interviewed a lot lately? How do you get them to say new stuff? This happens to me all the time because I am a radio broadcaster as a job. So you're, you're always having to juggle the person, you know, the the former prime minister who's on a book tour and like they're doing every piece of media. And I usually, it's, so it depends who the audience is to begin with. The event that I did with McWhorter was part of a Quillette uh, sponsored Uh, online streaming thing that's also co-branded with Think Inc., which is an Australian intellectual events company. And so I knew that it would be largely, because Quillate is also Australian-based, that it would probably be at least mm, maybe nudging 50% Australian audience who might be less familiar with McWhorter than Americans are. So I felt like there I was kind of able to just sort of roll with whatever I found interesting about him. And my interviewing style is also very much like go in with a loose plan, but then look for the little rabbit holes that open up that you can jump down as the person is talking. Very much improvisational. I've never been the type of person who asks a question and then just lets the person answer and then asks another question because I sort of think that's boring. You could sort of do that <laughs> in writing. It's a little boring. I don't think that's ever worked, ever. No, not really. I mean, and, and yet it is 95% of what interviewing is because you have a finite amount of time and there are things that you want to get to and you don't want to let them filibuster. But the beauty of podcasts is you don't have really a finite amount of time at all. So you can keep sort of tugging at the strings that seem interesting and see where they unravel and where they they take you. But if you're talking to someone who is well-known and who has done a lot of media rounds and you sort of know exactly what they want to say, then I usually try to find just what is an angle on something that I know that they're vaguely interested in and don't tend to get asked about. So like what's the, what is the C-list subject and that's often an in, mm-hmm. which I didn't have to use with McWhorter. Mm-hmm. But McWhorter is, gr- I mean, he is great. He's exactly what I'm talking about in terms of yes. being someone who's dissident from the mainstream, but is really not. And I actually put this question to him. I was I was like, you know, aren't there at every point of cultural change, aren't there always people who are railing against how fast it's going and saying that it's gone overboard, but eventually when the equilibrium settles, they turned out to have been on the wrong side of history. And he was quite upfront about it. He was like, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. Like I have very specific intellectual criticisms of the way that identity politics and race in America is being conceived. And I'm leveling those accusations very carefully. I'm not 
I'm not just I'm not saying that progress isn't what we want. I'm saying that what we're currently seeing is not a form of progress. Yeah, he's very precise. He's able to yeah. wield his scalpel quite deftly. But he's also in a position that you and I are not in, which is that he is a black person and he's talking about race. I mean, he has mm. come along and he's able to be critical of movements like Black Lives Matter in a way that other people can't. There is this sort of cadre mm. of black intellectuals, Coleman Hughes is among them, who are sort of carving out a place in this critique, critiquing the 1619 Project, that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm curious, actually, what's your version of this in, in Australia? But before we get to that, like, do you ever feel that you are a, a cis white man? I heard a rumor that you're gay, so you do have a little, yeah, ch- you have a little check. Yeah, but not so much anymore. I mean, gay is like, does not get you very far. No, I know. Especially not when you're married and like, you know, conventional gay. It's not like I'm like swinging from some kind of BDSM harness on my weekends in some dungeon or something that's going to give me real cred with the kids. Uh, You know, married life, children, job, house. It's all so pedestrian these days. I'm half Jewish. So sometimes, I mean, that's not Mm. even much better, is it? Eh, You're in the media. Yeah, I know. We control the world. But I like to say, if people accuse me of, you know, being racist for dissenting about something that they're trying to bully me into believing, then it is nice to call them on their, like, anti-Semitism and homophobia. Mm-hmm. Just That's because good. I am an identity target. Yeah. I can call people a sexist. That's all I can yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. And uh, so I, I just find their anti-Semitism and homophobia deeply offensive. Deeply Deeply offensive, <laughs> Megan, every time they say it. I never call anybody a sexist, by the way. That's how I got in trouble in the first place. That's refreshing. You were in traditional broadcasting for a long time. Can you just sort of take us through your trajectory? I know you kind of got, is it true that you got famous on HuffPost Live? Or when did you start to feel like a, like a public figure, like a massive star? So I am still in conventional broadcasting in Australia. Not everything's about America, Megan. It is on this show. Okay. So, yeah, I am, I am still in conventional media. I am a uh, host at uh, ABC Radio in Sydney, which is not ABC America. It's the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, these countries with the same first letters. It gets so confusing. Which is our public broadcaster, which yep. I would think of sort of as like the BBC, yep. but um, a bit more fun. Or like NPR, but, you know, people actually listen to it. Uh, in the middle of the country, <laughs> not not just a few. Do they have f- pledge drives and giveaways? No, that's so sad when they have to do that in America because you don't fund your public broadcaster right. properly. They have to go begging like a panhandler. Can you come and give us? Some-? No, we don't have that. We pay. We pay. People pay taxes, and okay. then the taxes go to the ABC. No, but not having like a mug or a tote bag of your public no. media is kind of. I don't even. I don't even get an ABC mug. Okay. And I, I work here. All right. And that's interesting. That's also. I mean, just to sort of lift the like curtain on the the Wizard of Oz. Is that a thing? Anyway, that's good. Uh, just to let you see, peek behind the curtain a little bit. When you were saying like uncomfortable conversations, my podcast doesn't have deeply uncomfortable conversations in which I'm like tearing a new asshole on some trans activist or something in some hot button culture war debate. One reason for that is that I do have other professional obligations of a certain level of propriety and and professionalism in the Australian media landscape. And were the Murdoch uh, tabloid press, for example, to get 
evidence of someone at the ABC, you know, being something too controversial, they would just run with it and take any opportunity to uh, to hang me. So I have not been able to construct the much dreamed of sort of Sam Harris insulation from being fired yet. And I really love working at the ABC and I love the reach that it gives me because it's sort of the most listened to thing in Australia. So anyway, that's just to loop back to, to that. I'm, I'm not completely untethered from the mandates of uh, of woke, uh, of, of abiding by some of the woke rules. So you started, you were at HuffPost Live and then you created a podcast, We The People Live. I know I'm li- leaving a lot of stuff out. That's right. So basically, I studied journalism at, u- at university in Australia, but I liked, I loved doing comedy and I was good at doing impersonations and doing improv comedy. So I got a job after having worked as a radio pre- producer for a little bit. I got a job uh, writing comedy sketches and doing political impressions on the uh, talk radio shows in Sydney. And that was successful. It, I was sort of like, a, I mean, John Stewart was my hero, Those that kind of universe constellation of people, Colbert. And I wanted to go to, I basically wanted to work in, in New York and live in New York in my 20s. So I managed to convince my boss, who was the host of the radio show, that there was no reason why I couldn't do it from the States and in fact, make a virtue of being in a different time zone. So he let me move to New York. I would get up in the morning and read the Australian newspapers online when they'd come online at like midnight Sydney time, which would be nine or 10 in the morning in New York. And then I'd be able to write and voice sketches that could actually go to air like at 7 a.m. in Sydney, having been worked on since sort of three in the morning, instead of always doing the following day's news. So so I did that for almost a decade where I could work. I lived in Copenhagen for, and start, went to Copenhagen Business School for a semester. I lived really? in New York. Really? As part of a story or where, where you researched? No, was it I just wanted to do it. It was oh. great. No, Copenhagen no, Business School. You don't think <laughs> yeah, of that? Is it a, I, like a... <laughs> for democratic socialists or what was it's, it? No, it's that that is not all that Denmark has to offer. Uh, Denmark has to offer very pretty people. You're really and schooling very... me about my provincialism, aren't you? I operate, I traffic entirely in cliches, as my listeners know. That's right. Should we talk about the fact that my father was born in Switzerland and you can go down the cuckoo clock and chocolate and clogs uh, line of questioning? And, uh, you know, bank fraud Banking. kind of thing. Yeah. Actually, do the Swiss have clogs? They don't have clogs. I, don't, I can't even get my stereotypes. I'm so not a stereotypical person. I can't even get my oh, stereotypes. I don't that. even know. I'm so impartial, Megan. See, I don't even. I didn't even know that it was the Dutch who had clogs. That's how good a man I am. Okay, you went to business school in Copenhagen. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that was actually just because if you want the honest truth, a friend of mine studied in Denmark in 2004. And I went to visit her while I was, this was the first year that I went to New York and I went to visit her and the people there were so beautiful and it was so you're it really was shallow, so that's what you're fun. saying. I'm incredibly super, I was in my early twenties. I was like, this is paradise. I mean, you walk down the street and there's like a park full of lots of hot young people, shirtless, like even the females were like kicking around soccer balls <laughs> And like bouncing and cavorting in a typical cliche of what in your brain Scandinavia is. But this is what Americans say about Australia when we go to Australia. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But Australia just wasn't new right. to me. Yeah. And Denmark was. So I found a way to go to Copenhagen Business School and study globalization in the developing world, which I thought was an interesting thing, would be an interesting thing to know about. Uh, and like there was some subject on China and the rise of 
China, which I thought would be interesting. So anyway, long story short, I had a very charmed 20s, earning a, a good living doing comedy sketches for Australian radio, mostly from New York. And then while I was living in New York, I was able to get an agent to, as a as sort of a television host and yeah, primarily television stuff. And the first job I actually got was on Discovery Science Channel, where they were doing a, a show called Brink, which was a sort of a smart-arsey rap of science and tech news. It was kind of like, do you remember The Soup with Joel McHale? Oh, yeah, that's right. Which started as Talk Soup. Right. It was basically a ripoff of that, but for science and tech instead of pop culture. And so I did that for three seasons and then moved to LA for a year and didn't quite know what I was doing and and hated the West Coast, so moved back to to New York. And that's when HuffPost was just starting to, uh, like the Huffington Post was at the time, this is 2012, the most read online-only news thing in the universe. And so it was the hot place to be. And they were starting to set up a a video television streaming talk network called HuffPost Live. And they brought me on before it launched as one of the six founding uh, hosts and host producers, they they called us. And uh, they launched with 12 hours a day of, co- of content in basically half-hour segments of interviews with celebrities and newsmakers, panel conversations. And I would host sort of three or four half-hour segments a day for five years until the wheels started falling off everything and they they weren't quite able to keep up with the way that people were, the changing way that people were consuming video and Facebook got Mm -hmm. into video and HuffPost got bought by the largest telecommunications company in America. I can't even remember what one it is and started having to sort of post quarterly profits and things instead of having big sky visions of the future. And it went from being a a place with tons and tons of money to splash around on being the future of everything to being a a place where the creative people were gradually leaving. And uh, so thus I did. And in a circuitous way, ended up moving back to Australia after my partner and I had kids um, via surrogacy and felt that this would be a better place for them to live. And boy, in 2020, was I right. Yeah, I'd say, yeah. That's a hard second. Can you say that? I second that. People say it's a hard pass. I second that hard. It's a hard not pass. Uh, <laughs> it's a hard own. It's a hard take. It's a hard thumbs up. Yeah. Was there like a moment when you were doing HuffPost Live where you started to notice a shift in the culture and also media companies' sensibilities? I mean, one of the reasons that people like us are doing podcasts now is we've been in traditional media for a long time. And, you know, I I think about this a lot. Like, historically, I felt like I was basically on the same page with all of my colleagues. We sort of saw the world the same way and kind of counterintuitive ways of looking at things. And at a certain point, it seemed like you were saying before, you, you were on one side or the other side. And the kind of conversation that had drawn me into the business in the first place was sort of not allowed to take place anymore. Did you mm. start to notice th- those kinds of changes when you were there? or like? I think that was a little early. I left in 2016. There were a couple of things that come to mind about me, but I think they were mainly just me not understanding American sensitivities. Mm. So I've got some black American friends who've been to Australia who found it incredibly refreshingly non-racist because Australian white people weren't tiptoeing around race quite so much. And then I know another uh, African-American guy who came here and found it so racist because for the exact same reason. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's like a, 
I think if you want to be hypersensitive about race and you want race to color everything, then Australia is much more racist than the United States mm. because a person at a Barbie might say something that makes a joke about the fact that you're of a different race. Like just thinking that that, I mean, not a denigrating one, right. but you right. know, it might be just like, well, you're not going to need to put sun cream on or I don't know, something like that. Right. Like a 1980s style joke. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. But that that obviously can go down incredibly poorly in the states. So there were there were moments like that, like the, like in the early days of HuffPost, I did a segment about the N word. Wow. And yeah, because I found it odd. I mean, I found that I still find it odd, but I have sort of been beaten into submission that I know that you have to use the term the N word. But up until probably two or three years ago, in a conversation like this, I would still be saying it because I think it's truly infantilizing to black people to assume that they're that they're so fragile that they're incapable of understanding the context that we're talking about a terrible word that should never be used in anger or or hate but that they're so precious that they can't even understand that we could have a conversation about it like that to me is deeply offensive if i were black i would find it incredibly offensive and my black friends do find it incredibly offensive but there's a sufficiently large cohort of people who are now let's face it mostly white people who have a white savior complex who will attack me if i if they hear me make the magic mouth sounds like some kind of religious catechism if i say that word so anyway i thought it was interesting why americans use that term and so i did a segment about it and I said to the executive producer, I'm just going to say the word throughout the segment, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the segment is that it's this weird cultural habit. And I thought it might be a little bit offensive now, but we're becoming less racist as a culture, as a society. So in a few years time, it'll be less toxic. So as we become less racist, it'll become less taboo to be able to use the actual word when we're talking about the word because people will be less hypersensitive about it. And God bless my executive producer, because I probably wouldn't have a job today if there was video out me, out there of mm. me saying that word 25 times over and you could cut it back to back to back to back to back, right? Ugh. What year was this? This would have been either 2012 or 2013. Okay. And he said, look, just think of what they could do if they cut it and they wanted to be malicious about it. That's all I would say. You can do it whatever you want, he said, but, do, but just think about what that would look like. If in the wrong hands. So I was like, okay, I'll play along. I'll use your stupid N-word phrase. And I guess that was one moment. And if you had told me that in 2020, like think of how far in the future 2028 now feels or 2029. If I told you that in at that time, we're going to be less able to have mature conversations about race, I would have laughed at you. I mean, Obama was the president. Yeah, Obama was the president. I think everybody thought that we were done. Yeah, we were. We're going to be over this nonsense pretty soon. Like, there's no. Uh, which is not to say that there aren't still structural. You know, every time to I feel be like sure. I always have to qualify. To this. be sure, there are huge structural impediments. There is a lot of racism around. There is, you know, it's life is a lot harder if you're black than if you're white in certain contexts. You're much likelier to be, you know, in, on the lowest end of the financial scale in the United States. I have a way of just punching in those catechisms in, into yeah. the podcast. Yeah, it's a, it's like a sound effect. So you can just... Oh, go, really? No, no, but I'm <laughs> working on it. Oh, I'm going to patent that. that. I could patent that and oh, make a lot of money, don't you think? Great. Yeah. Can they, we just have a card or like yeah, some sort of sound effect? Or like, you know, when the terms and conditions are at the end of a radio ad and they speed them up yes. so the voice is really, really fast? Can we just have that? We'll just play that and it'll say all the things that you have to say Fantastic. to be a good white person. Yes. And it, we'll just have that done. And then the other 
another thing that that I think of where I was surprised by, I guess I wasn't surprised by the reaction because I was being intentionally being a bit of a dick, was, I don't know if you remember in like 2014 or 2015, there was a campaign to cancel Stephen Colbert when he still did the Colbert Report because he'd done a racist, a supposedly racist joke and a Korean-American activist named Sui Park, who was in her early 20s, which she was basically a professional troll. And mm-hmm. she, would, she would generate these social media campaigns to get celebrities fired for anti-Asian, right. specifically anti-Asian jokes. And it was when the head of the Redskins team, and now sort of in 10 years, I'll be fired for, I'll be cancelled for having said the word Redskins. I suppose we're supposed to say the name of the racist football, Washington football team. I don't know. Skin of red. Maybe that <laughs> that's construction would make it okay. Have, by the way, I did see a presenter on MSNBC say like, I'm not going to say the name of the football team. Like it's the R word. Huh. Okay. I guess it is one word. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. So yeah. So Stephen Colbert so the head of the Redskins said that he was going to pay money to like uh, an indigenous American charity. And that, that proves how not racist he is towards Native Americans. And Stephen Colbert said, some people in the past have accused me of being, of doing anti-Asian stereotypes. And they rolled tape of him on a I think it might have been a supposed, like, fictitious previous episode of Colbert where he's wearing, like, a Chinese rice man's ha- rice paddy hat. <laughs> right. And he's almost got, like, slant. he's doing slanty <laughs> eyes and he's going, oh, me so Chinese! <laughs> or something like that. Like, intentionally right. the worst humor, you know, the most racist humor you could possibly do. And then it cuts back to Colbert and he says, to prove that I'm not racist, I'm going to pledge $100,000 to the newly established Stephen Colbert Foundation for Oriental Ching Chong Ding Dongs or oh, whatever. Oh, that's right. I remember or that. Something like, yeah, or something yeah, like yeah. that, right? Amazing. And uh, Sui Park wanted that wanted him to be cancelled. It became a huge internet thing. I interviewed her on HuffPost. You can still find the video on YouTube. In fact, you should in some of the audio here. Uh, you won't get sued. And basically... <laughs> She pulled the white man, white man doesn't have a right to talk about these issues because he's white card. And I was just like, no, 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 no. You don't get to, you don't get to say that I don't have a right to an opinion about satire and cultural boundaries uh, just because I was, I was born a white man. And she was pulling the whole, well, as a white man, you, I, you obviously feel very entitled to talk over me, which is the history of what women of color have had to endure for centuries. And, you know, and I just, I just steamrolled over her and was like, I was like, you're, no, you're allowed to have whatever. She's like, you're just, you're calling my opinions into question and you're using your white privilege. And I was like, no, 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 you're allowed to have whatever opinions you want to have. They, these just happen to be stupid opinions. And that set the internet on fire and momentarily, like then Colbert showed a clip of me doing that on his next show and that became a whole thing. And then Joe Rogan hit me up and I went on Joe's show and that, that turned into six appearances on Joe Rogan's mm-hmm. show over the course of a bunch of years. And it was Joe who said, you know, you should do a podcast. He tells everyone to do a podcast. So mm. I started a podcast called We The People Live, which was, uh, you can't find anymore because I've pulled it down for exactly this reason. Mm. We, we were having very wild freewheeling conversations in Brooklyn bars with drunk audiences who were asking questions of people like John Ronson and yeah. Artie Lang and, uh, you know, all kinds of incredible characters. And you can't, so that was probably the point at which I started realizing we're intentionally doing something which is bucking a cultural trend towards purity and 
you know, which is very hostile towards transgression. And uh, then over the course of the past, I guess, three years or so, it's just accelerated and accelerated into to a point where um, I feel like we're on the losing side of the battle. But this, it made your career. It was a net positive, right? Did you, you felt like it was a turning point? I feel like I just caught the very last moment where you could talk without bullshit. Yeah. In a public professional setting without tiptoeing and dancing and eggshell dodging. Do you remember that website, Stuff White People Like? It was a yeah. hilarious. Yeah. It was a, so funny. Like a blog, and it was just making fun of sort of bougie, mm. kind mm. of like Bobos in Paradise 2.0 yeah. or yeah. something. I, yeah, that, you know, and actually listening to you talk, I'm remembering I wrote uh, when I was a columnist for Los Angeles Times. I'm coming across as so white, you're just thinking, oh, this is the whitest man in the world. Well, you, it's, you know, it's the Australian and the, uh, the heteronormative homosexual aspect of you. I remember, speaking of that, writing a column about when Jerry Lewis got in trouble on his telethon for saying fag. Do you remember this? No. I can't remember who he was referring to. And, it, you know, it was like the 19th hour of his telethon or something. He'd been on all mm. night and he was like, you know, being Jerry Lewis, being ridiculous. And he just, you know, spewing out a bunch of words and fag came out and it was this whole brouhaha. Mm. And Glad got involved, you know, the LGBT yep. anti-defamation media outlet uh, or mm. enterprise, whatever they are. And I remember writing a column about the word fag. I mean, I was able to do this in the newspaper. It was probably, yeah, right. I don't know, it was probably like 2008, I don't know. And I remember I ended I called the um the representative from Glad and asked because I said, you know, the word means a bundle of sticks. As all middle school boys know, the <laughs> word really means a bundle of sticks. <laughs> and I said, you know, how is this or also in the and the Brits would say like that it's a cigarette, like Yeah, and here as well. You would nip out for a fag, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, he was like, the, you know, the, the glad guy was like, well, this is totally unacceptable. And, and I said, okay, well, what about fag hag? Like, mm. why is that okay? Or is that okay? And he said, well, I got to, let me, let me ask around the office and let me get back to you about that. And I can't remember how it turned out, but it was like, I can't believe I was getting away with this kind of inquiry in yeah. a totally mainstream outlet. I think you're being a little cute when you say that it means a bundle of sticks or it means a cigarette, because if something is used in a context where it's supposed to, like, presumably the reason, I don't even know, I don't even remember this moment, but if he's using it as to say, like, ah, you're such a fag, like someone on a, on Twitter literally just this morning called either me or someone else who was commenting about something that I'd written about Trump, a fag. He was like, Trump hasn't killed anybody, you fag. Mm. And I do think that's, I mean, I don't think people should be fired for it, but I was 50-50 about whether to block him. Because for me, that's just a needlessly degrading, like, and it's not even that I'm offended by it. It's that it immediately reveals to me that you're so outside of anything interesting to say <laughs> that like well you're jerry like lewis some, yes well you're jerry oh yeah or you're just a really old man who probably wears adult nappies who's, who shouldn't be on the tv anymore but i mean you're reminding me a bit of when there was a brouhaha about alec baldwin calling someone a cocksucker right who was, i think it was a paparazzo who was like in his face he was in under a lot of stress where he'd left these horrible voicemail messages to his daughter or his That's wife right. or i don't even remember what the whole thing was it was his, to his daughter and his wife exposed them or something yeah yeah and he was all over the tabloids it was a horrible time for 
for him. He had paparazzi like chasing him down the street and and like getting in his face. And he ch- oh he chased one of the paparazzi paparazzos and was like, you know, get out of my face, you cocksucker. And then it became this whole forty eight hour news cycle where he's homophobic. Right. Like, does anyone think that he actually hates gay people and that he isn't just a product of growing up in the fifties and sixties in New York where? Like, he's not thinking about a person sucking another person's cock. It's just a fucking word. Yeah. It's got to have anything to do with that. So, yeah, don't use that word. Fine. If, you know, you shouldn't, ideally. I mean, it doesn't even... I don't even get why people like to get offended by this sort of thing. Like, I don't feel good when I'm feeling offended. So I don't know why people seem to love it so much. Yeah, and just for the record, I was not just saying that it was perfectly okay for Jerry Lewis to say this, but the, I remember that the reaction to him was so outsized and there was this you know, inability to sort of contextualize it. Like, it's him. Who cares? Of course, mm. you know, and it's been up all night and are we really going to get completely, are we going to cancel Jerry Lewis only now yeah. for this? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Do you think that these people are really sincere when they get outraged about this stuff. How much of it is just signaling an allegiance to the tribe and how much of it is core belief? It's really interesting because I guess I had a little bit of a change of heart when a newspaper article came out about the N-word. <laughs> it sounds like my life is just dogged by the N-word or something. It's it's not. It's only happened. It's going to be like the title of the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Notes. Josh loves the N-word. Mm-hmm. But, no, it just so happened that on one episode of We The People Live, I think Camille Foster, who you would also know as part of the kind of Coleman Hughes crew, who's a great guy, uh, he was on the show and uh, we were talking about that word, but we were using the actual word uh, to talk about the contours of when it's appropriate to say. And an Australian journalist got her hands on this clip. And in the way that you do when you're trying to embarrass someone, she included it in an article about, you know, what are the boundaries of speech that, uh, you know, the public broadcaster presenters are allowed, you know, the new presenter, Josh Sepp, presenter, by the way, in Australia just means host, uh, new host, Josh Sepp, you know, has recordings of him saying the N-word. And when that article was published, I got emails from people within the institution who I didn't know, but who I assumed were people of color saying, which sounded like they were really hurt. Like, you don't understand. It's not your word. It's our word. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be dismissive and say, oh, you're just making that up. Like, you're inventing the trauma. When I burn a Quran, and that's something I do all the time, Megan, I love burning Qurans. Uh, No, when, when a person burns a Quran, it would be churlish to say that the Muslims who riot are making up their offense. But that's not the, to say that the offense is warranted. Right. You know what I mean? It's a stupid thing to take offense about because these are just pieces of shredded trees with squiggles on them and no one should get upset about burning anything, really, unless you're doing a massive Nazi-style book burning, in which case the, the whole concept of burning, burning books in general is what you're getting upset about rightly. Yeah. So I think there's probably a certain amount of performance to it But I think that the bigger problem that we're facing is that, like, if it was just a question of people being insincere and playing power games, I think it would be an easier problem to vanquish. Yeah. The problem that I see is that people have become trained into a way of thinking about the world in which they are very fragile, in which everything is a power dynamic, in which 
certain mouth sounds and words and forms of discourse are good and others are bad. And there's a very sort of college-educated narrative around white supremacy, racial bias, implicit bias, white privilege, uh, gender bias, consent. Like there's there are all these things where there's a certain way that you need to talk about them. And if you don't sure. talk about them, then you are causing very real offense, like stupid offense, offense that shouldn't be taking place. But I think the way to understand it most correctly is basically the way that John McWhorter and also Jonathan Haidt understand it, which is not as like, is there a reason why you should be offended? Or is there a reason why what I'm saying is incorrect? Or can you prove to me that I'm saying the wrong thing? Because it's not about evidence. It's actually about religion. It's actually about essentially we're playing games of purity, transgression, confession. And these are tapping into all the yeah. same things as a Catholic confession booth. Uh, and so when you say like, is it actual offense? Yeah, I think people nowadays are actually getting offended in the same way that if I piss all over a statue of the Virgin Mary, people get more offended than if I just piss on the ground. It's funny that this is a college sort of ethos because I know you've said that David Letterman was an early influence. Yeah, huge. And he was so much the sort of symbol of that kind of snarky, hyper-ironic, very college kind of um, sensibility. And it was very much about being detached and cool. And it was revolutionary to see him mm. for the first time. I mean, I remember seeing him coming on the air. I was a teenager. I'm a little younger than you. And just be like, wow, you can do uh, just a little bit. And also you're ahead of several hours in Australia. So it's it, it balances it out. I will just say to the listener who, and the lady doesn't tell her age, obviously, but I I was never aware of the Letterman as a subversive, like, college thing. So uh, maybe you're mistaken about, uh, about my age or something, but uh, I loved Letterman because he was the king of the, of the entertainment heap and could skewer even the most powerful people in, in showbiz. Right. Because I, I came to know him once he was already there. But I take your point that he started out as a... But he did something... I just think he sort of comported himself in a way that signaled a coolness, an unflappability, really the opposite of hypersensitivity. Right. I see. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm getting at. And now I'm actually... Did I misspeak? Not that it matters. I am older than you. I can't remember if I said I was older or younger. It doesn't yeah, you matter. Know, you said you were young. You I said, said I was younger. younger that, which I, I, I misspoke. Was a funny joke. I misspoke. Oh, wasn't a joke. <laughs> but age is a construct. It's a social construct. It is. Doesn't matter. I don't see you as age at all. I see well, you, you don't as see an me. angel. You don't see me. I don't me see you at all. Audio. I, hear, I hear your voice as an angelic whisper in the ether, and I don't think mm -hmm. about age, and I don't think about gender, or I don't think about anything. I don't think about race. You could be any. You could be white, yellow, pink. Blue or purple, Megan. That's right. And I wouldn't judge you. You could have a vulva or a big swinging, you know what? I wouldn't even care. Wouldn't even come into my mind. That's how impartial I am. What about a Volvo? When somebody has a Volvo, you make a series of uh, assumptions. Well, to get, don't get me started on Subarus. I have a Subaru now. Is that true? I had a Volvo before. Really? And now I have a Subaru. You don't strike me as a Subaru person. Uh, you've never met me in person. Aren't you straight? Yeah, but I'm like, uh, I'm, uh, a lot of them do. I've actually written extensively about, this is, a, you know nothing of my work. I've written okay. extensively about this <laughs> phenomenon.
About of Subarus specifically? Of a sort of uh, like, um, you know, straight gayish girl. Yeah. Right. Anyway. Right. Yeah. That's another subject. Yeah, well, we can talk about that on my podcast. We can podcast. talk about you, that, okay. To the listener, if you're enjoying this, get a load of when Megan comes on my podcast. Yeah, we can do it from the Subaru. I'm going to record. Actually, now that I think of it, is there all these recording issues when you're trying yeah. to do the home studio. What if you set up like a recording studio in your car? And just did it on your commute. But it's small, but it's enclosed. It's like padded. I'm just thinking out loud here. Anyway. And Elon is probably listening to everything you do in your car anyway. Yeah. Not your well, Subaru, but... You know, if you've got a Tesla. Yeah. I've interviewed Elon before. He's, Have you? Uh, yeah. He's, he's fascinating. He is, isn't he? What did you make of him? Um, he's very hard to interview. He's very taciturn. Yeah. He's, he's laconic. Yeah. And I was interviewing him for Vogue, which is a strange oh, dear. Uh, pairing. There's a funny, uh, it's become a Silicon Valley thing, but I first noticed it in academia, in Ivy League uh, institutions, where when someone asks you a question, it's mandatory for you to pause for about six seconds, take a deep breath, and sort of sigh before answering as if you're so knowledgeable that the person you're talking to is only going to be able to grasp probably 20% of what you're talking about, which in Elon's case may be true. But I've noticed oh, yeah. it a lot in Silicon Valley talking to people. You go like, uh, you know, so uh, what's your next big thing? And they go, well, the way we're working is, and you're like, well, you could have just said that. Yeah. You didn't need all that time to think. They have to make it legible we're for just you. humans. Is that what it yeah. is? They, yeah. They're, they're doing you so. a favor. I'm they're immortal. Doing... Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little kid. So what are the topics that you really want to talk about that you feel are not being talked about in the right way? Because I think so much of this podcasting, it's about matching the guest with the subject. So mm. how do you think about that? Do you mean on my podcast? And any podcast. Like, well, especially mine, because like, especially mine, because I, it's all <laughs> about me, yours, because I'm an American. No, I, yeah. I think that... Um, especially with these complicated topics and going back to what we were saying earlier with the way the IDW crowd sometimes, I, I think sometimes those discussions are not as fruitful as they might be because we kind of hear the same people talking about the same things over mm. and over again. Like I always sort of want to find, you know, for instance, I recently had um, somebody talking about gender dysphoria in teens and young people. And mm. it, it was fantastic because she hadn't done like a whole bunch of interviews about it. And she was a therapist and she just spoke about it in an incredibly nuanced and thoughtful way. And amazingly, I did not get any pushback on the episode. It was, people were like, how you're, you're crazy to take this on. And, and I said, oh, let's just see. So how do you decide what you're going to talk about and who you're going to bring in to talk about it? That's a really good question, and it's a hard one because it's something I struggle with all the time. I mean, the last thing I want to do on my deathbed is look back and go, wow, I was chasing a lot of laser pointers. Like I was a cat with a, a set of jangly keys trying to swat at whatever was in front of me. Like that's not how you want your life to have gone. And yet the imperative to do that is so white hot at the moment because of the pace of social media and the the temperature and volatility of the culture wars. Yeah. Um, so one part of me just wants to become Yuval Noah Harari and go and meditate for three months of a year and only focus on the huge questions facing humankind. And another part of me wants to fight the daily good fight against people who are spouting bullshit and to try to steer the, the ship of culture towards saner waters. And I'm not sure if you can do both or if I'll have to drop the latter. In terms of my podcasts specifically, 
I love to spend time not talking about these things. I mean, I don't know why we're talking. I mean, this sounds like such a white thing to say, but I don't know why we're talking so much about race. I really don't understand why we're sp- spending so much time focusing on race. Well, because we got exhausted with gender, because gender, we t- absolutely ran out of things. Well, maybe not gen. We ran out of things about talking about women, that's for sure. Yeah. I think Me Too, like, just exhausted that whole genre, and we've had no choice but to move on to something even bigger and more vexing. Is it bigger and more vexing, though? Like, why is it bigger and more vexing? Well, for us as white people, it, uh, because I don't know how to talk about it. So it's more vexing for me. Right, yeah. But I mean, people are treating it as if it's the the foundational cornerstone of everything that surrounds us, that everything has to be viewed through this prism, that yeah. the only accurate way of understanding our role in the world is as participants in a grand moral sort of Shakespearean tragedy in which uh, people of color and white people are pitted against each other and the every single person of color is bearing a burden of centuries of oppression. I mean, history is true. The history was shitty. Slavery in particular in America was horrendous. The genocide of the indigenous Australians was horrendous. Lots of things are horrendous. I mean, my grandparents were in the Holocaust. It's, it was fucking horrendous. Like, we came to Australia as refugees. My dad did. And we built a new life, and now we're middle class, which is the story of lots of people of color as well. And so the fact that this could so easily be taken out of context and be used maliciously against me is what makes me sort of weary about, like, can we not even just state these obvious truths that for the majority of people in rich democracies at the moment... Their race is not the principal motivating way in which the people around them on a daily basis interface with them. It's not the thing that I think about or notice. Well, at least it is increasingly because it's being forced on me. Yeah. But my instinct is not to notice it. And my instinct is not to think that it's a particularly relevant component of who a person is. And the fact that we're constantly being encouraged to think that makes me really scared because not to play the the identity politics card again, but things haven't been great for Jews And things haven't been great for gays when straight white guys are encouraged to think about everything in identity terms historically. Like you can see the uptick in anti-Semitism. You can see the uptick in homophobia in places like Russia and Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. You get predictable consequences when you start encouraging everybody to think about themselves as their categories. I don't think it's a wise, a, a clever place to start going. So I just wish we'd shut the fuck up about it a little bit and get on with our lives and focus on the big important stuff. Like the fact that we're still spewing massive amounts of carbon by burning fossil fuels and like the west coast of the United States is on fire and Australia was on fire last summer. Yeah. And whatever you, even if you're a climate skeptic or whatever, we know with absolute certainty, we don't know the exact details, but we know with absolute certainty that the 21st century is going to get a lot more expensive and a lot more annoying and there'll be a lot more complicated movements of people and a lot more radical politics and a lot more far-right movements as a result of the kinds of droughts and disruptions and changes to the weather system. Can we just like talk about that? So when you say like, what do I want to talk about? The last thing I want to be talking about about really is with John McWhorter about why the N-word is taboo. I want to be talking about, you know, how to live on this planet and get along and manage our technology and our nuclear weapons and our fossil fuels in ways that don't just cause our grandchildren enormous pains in the asses. That's what I want to be talking about. 
Yeah. And so much of this, in order to talk about it in a productive way, you have to establish what is true. And that's where we run into problems, right? Like you have right. to identify what's actually going into what are the different factors making the situation what it is. And we can't even start there. Do you find that your private conversations contrast sharply with your public ones? This is really interesting. Unfortunately, increasingly not. Unfortunately, the my I swim in such white liberal woke circles that even one on one people are still spouting like people have people have swallowed the religion so much that frequently they won't even disavow it in private. Like it would have been the case two years ago that on the air I would be talking to another white person about like what what were we talking about the other day? Oh, it was about whether or not uh so a colleague of mine had been asked to comment for a newspaper article about cancel culture. And he told the reporter, he's also an on-air host, he told the reporter, I can't talk about it because I'm a white straight guy, so I don't know what it would be like to, you know, to be in a marginalized uh, community. And we were talking about that on the air. And then off the air, I said, yeah, but that's bullshit, right? I mean, of course you can, <laughs> of course you can have an opinion about whether or not people are going too far and trying to get, you know, an editor of a newspaper fired for having published an op-ed that was contrarian against a mainstream point of view that had, you know, about race or gender or something. And he was like, no, 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 no. It is not my place. How could I possibly know really? what is offensive to somebody? How old was if this I'm person? If I'm not in that... He's old. That's the thing. He's in his fifties. That's no offense, really old. Megan. <laughs> he was ancient. He was practically. He was in dead, a coffin. Megan. He was doing it he from a like, coffin. He, yeah. he drove a Subaru. He was that old. Yes. But I was like, come on, come on. Of course, you can have an opinion about whether or not something has gone too far. And he was like, no, because I'm not that person. He was like, if you are offended by something, then by definition, it was offensive. So just because I don't find it offensive as a white man doesn't mean that it wasn't offensive. And I was like, okay, I guess you've just drunk that Kool-Aid and you're making that decision. And like, how long has he been that way? A, and B, what is he getting out of it? These are the things I always want to know. These are such interesting questions. I should have prepared, shouldn't I? I should have studied for this podcast. Is it like wanting to be young and cool? Like, is it a sort of version of like a, you know, an old person wearing a, you know, riding a skateboard (laughs) and wearing a backwards baseball cap? This person does still play jazz music and like, you know, does he is that type well, jazz of jazz music is for old people. Yeah. Jazz uh, music as opposed to jazz jazz music. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> like calling it jazz music immediately adds ten years to my age. <laughs> I don't know. I think what is what's going on is that they think that there's a right side of history and they don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And so and they're not that they're not sufficiently interested in the intellectual contours of it to actually dig into it. So they don't want to pick fights. And if they were going to pick a fight, they certainly wouldn't want to be on the fight that's going to turn out to be uh, the crotchety old side of the fight. Or get them fired or something like that. Or get them fired. But here we're talking in private. Why is he keeping up the facade in private? Is he thinking, I'm wearing a wire? It is really like uh, you want to get baptized before you die, just in case. Yeah. I think it's the only thing that makes sense is is this way of thinking about it as as a religion like there's a faith and he's 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 chosen to subscribe to that faith and there's no point in arguing about it. there's no point in saying come on what real offense did a person you know would it was it seriously an erasure of trans lives for megan to talk to someone about detransitioners like what does that even mean and they don't have an obligation to 
articulate what it means. Their obligation no. is to be on the correct side of the, it's, it's to hold the correct position. And they've made the decision to hold that position. So it's almost just a patriotism or anything where it digs down deeper and its roots have a hold on you that are tighter than reason can can get to. It's like, they didn't reason themselves into this position and you're not going to reason them out of it. But it's so strange to me because talking about this stuff in the way that we're talking about it now is so interesting. It's such a much yeah. better way to go through life mm. with your mind than the other way. You know, I've, I've heard you talk, I think it was on the fifth column, you were addressing this point that I often struggle with. Like, you know, okay, why are you obsessing about these things? Why are you obsessing about speech issues and you know, what the extreme fringes of the left is doing when Trump is in office and there are babies in cages and there's real emergency. Why are you obsessing about this other stuff? And it's like, because it's so obvious that Trump is obvious. And I know this is really, I know it's really, this makes people angry. Like, oh, you're not upset about Trump enough. I am, I get it. But it's like, this is sort of the best show in town kind of thing. Like I would much rather be in this space talking about this than like just saying, being the, you know, 300 millionth person to say Trump is an asshole. Yeah, and, and like, where is our marginal utility, Megan? That's what I also think. Yeah. Like, there are lots of very talented, you know, bloviators who are talking about how terrible Trump is. And on the other side, there are, as well, there are lots of articulate conservatives who are making cases against, uh, against you know, left-wing economics and so on. But there aren't a lot of people who are in the centre making articulate a pox on both your houses positions. So my usefulness, like, I mean, it's just sort of simple maths or economics, isn't it? Where like, if you've got a hundred million people all doing one thing, then the utility of having a 100 million and one person is less than if you've only got 10 people having a conversation, then the 11th person is a real contributor to it. And I feel like we're in the group of 10 while everyone else is going crazy in this massive civil war. Except I think there's more than 10 of us now. That's a problem. Maybe we should have a limit. We should start gatekeeping. Well, could we cull a few? Yeah, for sure. I don't think there are that many. Well, there certainly are people. But the thing is, I'm sure you hear from people all the time, like me. I mean, I get emails on a daily, hourly basis from people oh, saying, yeah. I can't, you know, thanks for talking about this because I can't. And I wonder yeah, what no, they're I talking about in, public, in private. No, I know. I but like, in the public yes, square. No, yeah, I know. Yeah, I, yeah, I just conflated yeah. those two things. But like, do you ever sort of worry that you're thinking about this stuff too much? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Totally. I mean, I am I'm really close to just deleting my, at least my social media apps off my phone. Because, I, I mean, I did a, a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival ye- last year. I'm a very eclectic person, Megan. You'll get this. Imp- so, like, I am technically a journalist, but I, because I also did a lot of work at at UCB, Upright Citizens Brigade in New York, and improv here, I sort of still have a, a a love of articulating things. I think the best form of persuasion, if you can do it, is is comedy. So I did a yes. one man show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which was called You Too, like hashtag You Too instead of Meet Me Too. Wow, you got away with that. Yeah, they did. We did have a meeting about it at the comedy festival. They said we are trying to be a little less predictably, like politically correct. So I think we can let this one pass. And it was subtitled "Why Social Media Is Ruining Everything," and it was basically like if you've seen the Social Dilemma on Netflix, and yes. if you haven't, you should. It was sort of I just read all the books by all those people who were interviewed on that 
in that movie uh, a year Amazing. before the movie came out and and sort of did a comedic articulation of that through also the prism of what I call the oppression Olympics, where everyone is vying for top place as the trans woman of color, uh, you know, prize. And we're all ranking each other according to our, our identity grievances and sort of you know, me whining about the, 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 the what I call arc, outrage archaeology, where yes. you go back through someone's yes. history trying to get angry, trying to find things to take umbrage at and get angry at. So it was a, a broadside against all of that sort of stuff. And that made me, that got me into a headspace of like, maybe we're just punishing ourselves by using these forums, which are not reflective of the way that people actually think and talk in real life and maybe those are the things that are going to doom us and I, I should just be done with them i mean i'd quite like to not have anything to do with this but i i'd also feel like i was letting down my own intellectual potential somehow by just seeding the field by walking off the the territory and what would you do just meditate and raise your kids what would that look like well it'd probably just look like doing having interesting conversation. I mean, doing what I'm, to be honest, mostly do, which is if I'm hosting three hours of talkback radio a day, then very little of it is spent on this stuff. And it's mostly spent on, oh, okay, so the government overpaid 10 times for some some land around the second Sydney airport that they just bid. So let's have a conversation about like, how does the government decide what to pay private landowners when it takes things off it? Like, what is okay? What is not okay? Or like, you know, we've got a new TV show that's coming on. What were your favorite, you know, what were the, what were the greatest TV shows that should come back? I mean, it, it like just a large eclectic range of different things that impact people's lives. But then that can also feel trivial as well. Are we really going to know what we should have been spending our time doing until it's, it's all over and we, we have the perspective of hindsight? Okay, if you look back on your life 20 years, do you think you should have been spending your time doing something else? It's interesting. I mean, if I had advice to give my younger self, and listen up, kiddos, because this is a gem, I would say to pick one of the various things that I'm interested in and focus on being the very, very, very best at that. But then, see, the thing is, with hindsight, I can say that because I ended up being successful in one of my fields. And now I'm thinking, oh, maybe I'd be even more successful if I'd only focused on that. But that presumes that I would have picked the correct field and known that radio broadcasting was the one. Like, what if I doubled down on improv comedy and I'm just not good as good at improv comedy as Jim mm. Carrey is? And so I, that would have gone nowhere. So I'm not, I don't actually know. I think I ended up doing okay, but I I do, because I'm such a polymath and some, I'm so eclectic in my interests, I do think I could use a little bit of focus. I'm pretty Asperger's-y. Mm, okay. So you're a fox and not a hedgehog. I don't remember that analogy. What's the metaphor? I think it was uh, Walter Benjamin, but then of course it was made famous in uh, the Woody Allen movie, Husbands and Wives. So the Oh yeah, that's right. The fox knows everything and the hedgehog knows one big thing. Yeah, I'm definitely a fox. Okay. I can't believe you I'm just sure cited accused sexual predator Woody Allen on this podcast. Isn't he cancelled now? He is cancelled. Well, that's another conversation. You know who I would love to get as a guest? Woody Allen? You, number one. Actually, mm. Moses Farrow. I would love to have Ooh. Moses Farrow as a guest. You could. That's probably a get you can get. If he's listening to this, I'm working on it. 
but it's got to be again like it's got to you've got to sort of get the get the show established and but here's another tidbit of information I don't know if you heard this on one another episode of my podcast you probably did but Woody Allen was offered to one of my colleagues here at ABC Radio and he turned him down offered as what as an interview to promote his 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 autobiography oh really wow he turned him down because it was too controversial and I said I'll take him and I had various conversations and the 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 consensus was that is going to haunt you until the day you die and it's always going to be used in every article by everyone trying to attack you. Yeah, it is it, it is definitely the third rail and it's it's funny cuz I've had like sort of arguments with people who are like usually completely on my side with these kind of heterodox ideas and you know we thought we were like on the same team, utterly, and then the Woody Allen thing just derails it. Like, that's where, there will Mm. be no agreement there. But, like, why is the question whether or not we have to approve of the personal conduct of people who we converse with? This is such a high bar. I mean, okay, you could just say, like, don't rape children and if you if there if there is ever any suggestion that you've done such a thing then you can't exist in the public square that could be a rule but then that means that when when the accusation itself is able to ruin a person's life right if you've been investigated and exonerated and the and sufficient evidence has not been found that's right or we could say that people who have somewhat unseemly relationships with their ex-wives uh foster ex-girlfriends Sorry, ex-girlfriends, yeah, uh, foster children who are of age and enter relationships. Adopted child, not foster child. But yeah, I, I just, just for the record, because okay. people are going to, because I'm too lazy <laughs> to right. edit this and people are going to write, write and complain. So yes. I didn't even know there was a difference between an adopted child and foster child. I thought that you, when you foster a child and keep it forever, that becomes an adopted child. But you're right. You, you're See, this is the level of professionalism that I've come to expect from you. Mm-hmm. The choice of words is is correct, is important. And uh, the, the, like you could have a rule that then even if the marriage lasts for 25 years or whatever it's lasted for, do you want to fact check that as well? How long has... Well, I, I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I, I do know from ser- from several sources that they seem to have a very strong marriage and it's yeah. lasted quite a while. So you could say those people aren't allowed to be in the public square, but then I would be allowed to interview like uh, a, the Unabomber or something, right? If he had a, a decent internet connection, because there would be that a lot, be a lot of audio. Can you imagine the audio complications yeah. with Unabomber? No, that's right. Well, what about a dictator? If I knew what the rules were, then maybe it would make things easier. I just don't understand why the rule is that, like, if I interviewed Louis C.K., that'd be a, like, you'd have to devote at least half of the interview to grilling him about why he likes beating off in front of other girls. You know, and that would have to be the focus. But if I were interviewing, I don't know, yeah, like literally a dictator, then you could talk about a whole bunch of other things. Yeah, I would love to interview Louis C.K. as well. So just to to wrap it up, you know, one of the um, the questions that I ask guests often toward the end of the interview is an echo of what originally this podcast was going to be called. I, I was going to call the podcast for a while The Problem With Everything, which is the name yeah. of my last book. It's a fantastic book. I loved that book. So when you say, I know nothing of your that work. That was not a leading question. That was, I was not teeing you up to compliment my book. Well, thank you. And I listened to the audio book, actually, which, which was excellent. Very well read. I don't think anybody reads anymore because I have never listened to an audio book 
in my life. And I have read several of my own audiobooks, which, by the way, is cringe, cringe. Like, Yeah. But here's the thing. Let me make the pitch for the audiobook for specifically this type of book. I would never listen to a fiction audiobook because I think there's something delicious about the turn of phrase on the page. And I think there's a way of getting lost in the world of words that doesn't happen when you're just listening to something. But I think books like yours are, and uh, perhaps mine in the future, who knows, are perfect for uh, for listening to by audiobook because it's the person's opinions, they're reading their opinions, it's their story, it's a, it's a memoir, it's like a point of view, it's not a fantastical different like space that you need the pages to come alive with. It's a personal experience and so the audiobook is perfectly suited for it. Okay, that's good to hear. I can't imagine somebody sitting with the sound of my own voice for for that long. I guess. Well, to be fair to you, I did not sit down for 16 hours and listen to it. I was doing the dishes. I was driving around. It's really better that. uh, Isn't that nice, though? I like that idea. I like the idea of people going about their lives. That's one of the things I like about being a a radio host. I know. know, All these hundreds of thousands of people out there, they're driving around, they're picking their kids up, and uh, you're talking to them. That's right. No, you've spent time with the person. Yeah. So what do you think is the problem with everything? Why is the world the way it is? Why are people so unable to metabolize their reality or any reality? What is your diagnosis? Well, Megan, I would say... Mm, my instinct is to say that, it, that it's just the way that our minds are built. We have monkey minds that have evolved over millions of years to worry about the future and regret the past and replay stories in our heads in order to help us to learn. And so we spend a lot of time inside those stories on loops of self-justification combined with self-judgment, combined with trying to peg other people into categories of either villain or hero. Like we're just living inside of myths of our own making instead of actually interfacing with the world as it exists in front of us right now. And so how do you subdue that? Like what what contexts aggravate that problem and what contexts sort of provide a, a balm for that problem? I think what has happened now is that social media aggravates that immensely, intensely, more than anything ever has because it increases the pace of news it increases the friction between individuals like i guess the second thing that i would say other than that sort of monkey mind that is the problem with everything is not giving other people the benefit of the doubt yeah and i think that the two are the two are linked and so the the way that we are currently talking to each other makes both of those problems worse it both makes us quicker to snap to judgments and to activate our defensiveness and try to protect our own ideas and our own identity and our own tribe. Uh, and it also makes us less willing to uh, to treat other people as these special, spiritual, unique flowers that they actually are and more willing to find fault with them. I mean, it's funny when people say like, when I say, well, you know, give people the benefit of the doubt and then people frequently say, well, if I was in that person's position, I wouldn't be behaving that way. And I say, well, yeah, that's because you're inserting you as you into their body. Like if you were actually them, then you wouldn't be behaving the way that you're behaving because you wouldn't be you. Like you're insisting that they be you. You're not actually saying if you were them. If you were them, you'd be doing what they're doing. Right. Because they're doing what they're doing because they're them. This is like arguing with your younger self. Like there's no way you're going to change what your younger (laughs) self did because your older self is 
the product of the choices of the younger self, right? Yes. So I, I think, I mean, I think the remedy is any system that can get you to become skeptical of your own rightness. And so those systems are things like uh, secular Buddhism, uh, mindfulness. There are secular foundations like the Landmark Forum, which do the same sort of thing, which kind of compress all of the wisdom of the 1960s hippie movement into one like intense three-day course, uh, the Landmark Forum, which have you ever done Landmark or do you know people who have? No, I don't. I can't do stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's like it's like an injection of Buddhism directly into your eye. Oh. It's uh, it's actually a lot of fun. I found it very useful. But anyway, I mean, anything that gets you to sort of spend a significant prolonged period of time, whether it's meditation or the forum or something like that, sitting down and analyzing your own shit is, I think, the solution. And social media does the opposite of that. It activates your reactivity and keeps you mired in spirals of echo chambers and self-justification. And so I think that's the problem with everything. The problem with everything, Megan, is us. Well, you're doing your part with uncomfortable conversations. You're doing your part to mitigate the problem. So thank you for what you do. And congratulations. Well, thank you. And congratulations on this podcast. And uh, to listeners, uh, if if it's not enough to come to Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Sepps to listen to me, come to it to listen to Megan, who'll be doing the show uh, in the next few days. (laughs) Because these people in these circles you know, we've been complaining about how it's all the same people talking to each other. So I'm glad that we're perpetuating it. <laughs> we've got to perpetuate the stereotype. It's That's like right. there was a time when there were so few people doing podcasts that there was only comics who did podcasts. And yeah. I remember, yeah, I remember talking to one of them who was like, it's just, it's just a huge podcast circle jerk. I mean, everybody, like the whole, all podcasts are, are uh, you want to come to my podcast? Sure, I'll do your podcast. And there was just the same people. There were basically like 16 people with podcasts just alternating on each other's shows. That's what we'll do. That's right. We're keeping the dream alive. Absolutely. Josh Zepps, thank you. Thank you, Megan. That was my interview with Josh Zepps. His podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations, can be found on all the usual podcast places, along with this one. This is the Unspeakable Podcast. If you have not yet joined the Patreon for this show, I would really love it if you did. This is a totally solo venture, which means I rely totally on support from you. Patreon subscribers currently get lots of extras, like bonus content, early access to the podcast, the chance to interact with each other in chats and on live streams. I'm always trying to introduce new ideas and new offerings to get a sense of community. So I really hope that will entice you. On October 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern, I'll be facilitating a video live stream with former guest Sasha Ayad. She's a licensed professional counselor specializing in teens and young people dealing with issues of gender dysphoria and gender identity. Now, I'll just say it. Sasha speaks about this subject more honestly, thoughtfully, and genuinely informatively than just about anyone. So if this subject is something that interests you, please consider joining us. It's free for high and mid-tier level Patreon subscribers and tickets are available to the public. Again, that's October 29th at 8 p.m. Eastern. You can find out more at patreon.com slash theunspeakable or theunspeakablepodcast.com. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I'll announce next week's guest very soon. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. 
Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW.